Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is it. On Tuesday, the main hearings for one of the biggest public inquiries in British history will finally kick off. My principal aim is to produce reports and recommendations before another disaster strikes the four nations of the United Kingdom. What did the government do right and wrong during the pandemic? And what lessons should it learn for the next one? After hundreds of thousands of deaths, there's still so much we don't know. Here are just a few of the 150 questions that have already been sent to one witness, Boris Johnson, to answer under oath. Did you receive advice that Matt Hancock should be removed from his position? Did the Cabinet Secretary advise you to inform the public to hold chickenpox parties? To what extent did you believe that coronavirus was akin to influenza? Please confirm whether in March 2020 you suggested that you be injected with COVID-19 on television to demonstrate to the public that it did not pose a threat. Were you advised or Why did you not attend any COBRA meetings in relation to COVID-19 on the 24th of January, 29th of January, 12th of February, 18th of February? Did you state that you would rather let the bodies pile high than order another lockdown? If so, please set out the circumstances in which you made these comments. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, what to expect from the COVID inquiry and the questions keeping the government awake at night. Later in today's episode... We'll hear from the Sunday Times investigations team that exposed some of the biggest government failings during COVID. But first, how will the inquiry itself actually work? Meet one of the team of journalists who'll be covering it for the Times. My name's James Beale and I'm the social affairs editor at the Times. We now have, starting next week, the much-anticipated COVID inquiry. It hasn't even begun yet, and it's already causing controversy. 
You know, there's been talk of cover-ups, talk of Boris Johnson and WhatsApps. Just remind us where we are. Well, it was set up by Boris Johnson in May 2021. Scale of it is really extraordinary. Baroness Hallett, the chair, the person who's in charge, she's in the House of Lords. She's a retired Court of Appeal judge. And Baroness Hallett has estimated that it's going to last at least three years. The cost at the moment is slated as something like 125 million. If you look at the six modules that have been announced, it's going to look at a whole number of different things. You've got the first one that's going to start next week on pandemic resilience and preparedness. You've got government decision making. You've got the impact of the pandemic on the healthcare systems in each of the four nations, vaccines, government procurement and the care sector. She wants to keep the reports arising from these modules coming out on a fairly regular basis. So she's anticipating reports from the first couple of modules coming out next year. That's interesting. So is that why they've done it in modules? Because you sometimes these inquiries are launched and you, you get nothing for years. Yeah, I, th- I think she's wary of not producing a singular report until 2026, where she anticipates the inquiry will end. So it could be months yet before we hear any of these key figures being grilled? Potentially, yeah. This inquiry is expected to go on for years and years, and I think it's already clear it's not just going to have an impact on this government, it's going to have an impact on previous governments and future governments as well. Johnson's material includes 24 notebooks, his diaries and WhatsApp messages with cabinet ministers, advisers and senior civil servants. Baroness Hallett has demanded about two years' worth of WhatsApp messages from Boris Johnson and other top cabinet ministers. And that's been met with some resistance from the cabinet office. It said that it's for them, the government, to decide what is relevant and what to hand over. Baroness Hallett, chair of the COVID inquiry, isn't having any of it. Just remind us of what the cabinet office is. It's like the number 10 enforcement unit. So Boris Johnson has handed over his messages and diaries and notebooks to the Cabinet Office. But the Cabinet Office at the moment aren't handing them over to the inquiry because they say that the scope goes too far. And in response, the Cabinet Office have actually said that they're prepared to launch a judicial review. Presumably a judge will have to rule whether the contents of the messages should be handed over or not. Those conversations will be on the phones of multiple people, not just Boris Johnson. There'll be Simon Case, Dominic Cummings, Lee Kane, former Health Secretary Matt Hancock, other key players. We've seen a lot of Matt Hancock's text messages already. Exactly, yeah. The Telegraph newspaper got access to his WhatsApp messages. You've sort of had a a, a selective version of of those text messages so far. This will be all of them, I suppose. Yeah. The point is that Baroness Hallett wants to go through them herself and decide what is relevant, not somebody attached to the government who may or may not leave stuff out. Boris Johnson says that he's going to provide his WhatsApp messages directly to the inquiry, circumventing the Cabinet Office. Why do you think he's made that statement? I think politically for him it looks very bad if he's not cooperating with the inquiry that he set up when the news broke that the Cabinet Office wanted to seek this judicial review. I think he probably would have been quite alarmed and has now made his feelings clear by saying, look, I'm prepared to hand over everything I have. But in response, the Cabinet Office have made it clear to him that they will withdraw the support they're providing him in terms of the inquiry if that happens. So 
Wow, and does that mean lawyers? He won't get the legal help he's getting? Or? Yeah, yeah. So he, he won't be provided with the legal support that he's currently receiving. So there's a, something of a Mexican standoff, really, at the moment between the inquiry, Boris Johnson and the Cabinet Office. We've ended up in a bizarre situation where Boris Johnson's own government lawyers, in the course of working for him, have ended up referring him to the police. Just ask, how did that happen? Well, the lawyers that were working on behalf of him to go through his messages and his diaries discovered through the course of their work evidence that perhaps some of the gatherings that he was holding during the pandemic may have been breaking lockdown rules. He faces new allegations that he broke lockdown rules, although Boris Johnson's team and backers are calling it a political stitch-up. So So they handed them over to the police. The assertion by the Cabinet Office that there have been further COVID rule breaches is totally untrue. This is both bizarre and unacceptable. That's a remarkable position to be in. With this inquiry, we've had a lot of questions, certainly from journalists, but also within Parliament and select committees looking at COVID. How does this differ? What is it about the inquiry that means they'll either be able to get answers you couldn't before? or You know, what is it that will make this a very different process? Legally, witnesses to a public inquiry have to take a public oath and face sanctions, and they can even face jail if they don't turn up and give evidence. So there's a lot more powers that the inquiry has to compel people to give evidence as opposed to any kind of select committee. And if you lie to the inquiry, are are there sanctions for that too? Yeah, lying is a criminal offence at a public inquiry, and you can face criminal sanctions for doing so. So the stakes are high. The sanctions for not cooperating with the inquiry are serious. So what will it be asking? Many of the questions were first raised by Insight, the renowned investigative unit at the Sunday Times. I'm uh, George Arbuthnot. I'm the deputy editor of the Sunday Times Insight team. We do long-term investigations. And I was a co-author of a book called Failures of State, which looked at the government's handling of the pandemic. George, you've been looking at a lot of these questions longer than anyone. For you, why do you think this inquiry matters so much? Well, Britain's handling of the pandemic, particularly in that first year, was extremely poor. We had been ranked second in the world for pandemic planning, yet we ended up with Europe's worst death toll and one of the world's worst recessions in that first year. And so it's incredibly important we try to understand how that happened. And your book, Failures of State, it brought up a lot of the questions that the inquiry will be asking. At the time, I remember some reviewers of your book said it was basically the first draft of an inquiry. Now, for the first time, we're actually going to hear a lot of those questions being put to key government ministers. We're going to hear them take an oath and have to answer for what was happening behind the scenes during that key period. For you, what are the key moments you're waiting for? I mean, who are the people you're most looking forward to seeing being questioned by the inquiry? Yeah, well, obviously, a lot of the people that we spoke to for our our reporting and also for the book will be called to give evidence to the inquiry. So it would be fascinating to see what they say. But also, we spoke to many people as possible, but the inquiry will have access to everyone who was in the room when decisions were made. And so seeing all those witnesses come together and seeing how their accounts 
compared with what we wrote at the time and other accounts that have come out since will be absolutely fascinating. And obviously also the contemporaneous documentary evidence, you know, for, particularly for people like Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, who were in power at the time, they've received you know some scrutiny, but the nature of those kind of press conferences where there were piecemeal questions from journalists and they were able to prevaricate a lot of the time on some of the more difficult issues. This is different. You know, they're going to have the documentary evidence laid out in front of them and have high-powered lawyers and cross-examining them and hopefully not letting them off the hook and forcing them to answer the difficult questions. And George, this inquiry is epic in its scale and scope and it will cover years. For the key moments, though, they will be examining will echo the key moments that we all lived through, the key moments of the pandemic. What are the questions that we still need asked? What do we still not know? Well, certainly when the virus first started emerging in in January 2020, Britain was not in a good state of preparedness. With austerity, we'd allowed our pandemic stockpiles to dwindle with things like PPE, for example. The pandemic was always a number one risk to the UK because Mm. of the sheer chaos and death and destruction it could cause. Yet, because it wasn't at the top of the government's daily inbox of political concerns, it became a kind of issue that was neglected. So that's critically important. The other issue was was through those first six weeks or so of of the virus emerging, was the government's failure to properly grasp and grip the problem. And the central to that was Boris Johnson himself. We reported that he'd missed the first five COBRA meetings on the virus through January and February. And we now have heard it alleged that he was so keen to downplay the virus that he has actually discussed going on live TV and being injected with it himself um, to prove that it wasn't something to be concerned about. I mean, that's that's just so shocking now, given that when he did get it, he was very seriously ill in hospital. The idea that he would have been injected on TV. Absolutely. And it's bizarre. And you can, you know, that's obviously a kind of an extraordinary anecdote. I may say so, that uh, some of the, the commentary I've heard uh, doesn't bear any relation to reality. And uh, what people want us to get on with is... is but the-, the lack of concern had, had proper consequences. Britain was giving away its PPE in February 2022 to China. I think hundreds of thousands of pieces were sent back to China and then be only a few weeks before we were begging them to send it back because our hospitals were being overwhelmed and doctors and nurses were having to go in there without proper protection and were becoming infected themselves, which is then exacerbating the staff shortage. So that kind of lackadaisical approach in those early days really should be properly scrutinised. And I've, I note that Baroness Hallett, the chair of the committee, has asked Boris Johnson if that account is true and if so for an explanation. And I suppose that's the other interesting thing because, you know, we've seen some WhatsApp messages being published in the Telegraph from Matt Hancock from the time. Not all of them, just a selection. We've heard accounts from Dominic Cummings, but we've never really had a definitive answer. And I suppose that's what the inquiry will be getting to. Absolutely. And Dominic Cummings painted an extraordinary picture of what was happening behind the scenes. The truth is that senior ministers, senior officials, senior advisers like me fell disastrously short of the standards that the public has a right to expect 
of its government in a crisis like this. When the public needed us most, the government failed. And his account did tally with our reporting in the main, particularly on the big questions over lockdown. But I think the biggest questions for me will be about the three late lockdowns, the first in March 2020, then in November 2020, and then the last in January 2021. On the first one, scientists had initially, the sage scientists had initially underestimated the, the speed of the spread of the virus. But by the second week of March, it was clear that the only way to control the virus was to institute a full lockdown. But Britain was the last major country in Europe to do so. When the sage scientists recommended that Boris did so was on the 14th of March, when there were 200,000 infections across the country. But by the 23rd of March, nine days later, because the virus was doubling every three days, the number of infections had reached an estimated 1.5 million. And it was that, that delay that led us to have the worst death toll in Europe and the longest lockdown, first lockdown in Europe. The really damaging delay was those last nine days, at which point the scientists had recognised their mistake and revised their advice to Boris Johnson. But it was his failure at that point to then take on that advice through those nine days that really left Britain in a significantly worse position than the other comparable countries. The government claimed in that first wave that everybody got the care they needed. I remember Matt Hancock made that claim in particular, but the truth was almost the opposite. Thousands of people died without the care they needed. Something like just one in nine of those who died of the virus in that first wave ever got into intensive care. So a tiny percentage got the best possible treatment before they died. Many, many were left in care homes. Ambulances were prevented from going to care homes because it was felt that the care needed to be rationed. Thousands of people died in their own homes. Yeah. I mean, it was horrifying thinking back to it now. You know, it's just extraordinary to think we lived through that moment. Matt Hancock was also supposed to be responsible for sending people back to care homes. Just tell us a bit about that policy and the impact it had and what you're hoping to find out about it in this inquiry. Yeah, so they, they were desperate to free up hospital beds. And so they made a very rapid decision in the third week of March before the first lockdown to eject elderly people from hospital and, and send them to care homes. But they did not test them for the virus before sending them to the care homes. And so that effectively seeded the virus into the places where Britain's most vulnerable people were. And because the hospital beds became so scarce, once the virus took hold in these care homes and people became seriously ill, they would not then be taken to hospital. And so these care workers were having to tend to elderly people who were just dying, often for several a day. And yeah. it, I mean, it, it's, it, we actually recovered some documents which suggested that they were sending people to care homes who actually had tested positive for the virus in hospital. Knowing um, that. Knowing that. And it was completely reckless. I remember we were speaking to a care home owner who, who talked about multiple people dying in his home over a couple of days. And they were desperately calling ambulances, asking them to come, and they never did. And then when the first wave eased off with the lockdown, they were able to send some of their elderly to hospital when they caught COVID. 
And some of them did survive as a result of that hospital treatment, whereas previously everyone who caught the virus because they were so frail had died. And so he felt that these these elderly people had died unnecessarily because if they got the treatment that they needed, they would have survived. Coming up, what are the big questions that Rishi Sunak will have to answer under oath? That's in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com/people today There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your reporting was so strong at sort of pointing out the dither and delay and Boris Johnson not taking it seriously enough. At the same time, the current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, made his reputation during that period. You know, he went from being a relatively unknown politician to being the Chancellor What are the issues you're most interested in hearing about him? Well, he he made his name with the furlough scheme, and he he'd only just become chancellor, and uh, obviously stood up at the um, press conference and said we're going to look after everyone, which was you know obviously was crucial in, in in keeping people's head above water during the first lockdown. But when Boris got ill and then came out of hospital, he stood on the steps of Downing Street and, and made a speech. Where he said it would be a catastrophe for this country if we allowed a second wave of the virus. We must also recognise the risk of a second spike, the risk of losing control of that virus and letting the reproduction rate go back over one, because that would mean not only a new wave of death and disease, but also an economic disaster. And so it was felt that he'd understood the point that allowing the virus to escalate again would leave the country again in, in, in the in the worst of both worlds. So we had we had a long lockdown. The virus got back under control in the summer of 2020, 
But then Rishi Sunak decided in an attempt to boost the economy that he would introduce his eat out to help out scheme. Now, the sage scientists were not consulted about this. And when they heard about it, they, they were horrified. I mean, it's such a big policy and, and they didn't follow the science? They didn't consult the scientists. They were astonished. So they saw it as incentivizing people to go into small spaces. They described it as, as subsidizing the spread of the virus with public money. And what they really find remarkable is that if you were really trying to boost the economy, you would have made it include takeaways so you could pick up the food and, and take it home and eat, and eat it in relative safety. But yeah. it didn't. You only benefited from it if you actually went into the crammed restaurant. Such a good point. It did encourage people to try and go back to normal effectively. Exactly. And, and studies have found that it did significantly fan the flames of the virus. By September, it was again doubling in, in, in only a matter of days. At that point, the scientists said, look, we made the mistake in the first wave of acting too late. We cannot do this again. From our reporting, it suggests that Boris Johnson was almost persuaded of that argument. But as we understand it, Sunak was not keen to learn the lesson. And he was focused entirely on prioritizing the economy in the short term without recognizing that by allowing the virus to rise up again, you were, you were going to end up going into an, another lockdown, which was the only way that the virus could be controlled. And obviously, in the long term, a long lockdown would be far more disastrous for the economy than a quick, short lockdown in the early stages. So he and Boris called in a couple of experts who were not part of SAGE. One of them was Professor Sanitra Gupta from Oxford University. I think there's a, there's a chance we might have done better by doing nothing at all. Remaining in a state of lockdown is also one which I think is extremely dangerous. She'd been involved in a study in March 2020, which suggested potentially half of Britain's population had already been infected with the virus, which had been proved to be wildly wrong. And Professor Carl Hennigan was the other one. He was denying that the second wave had even begun, even though they could see on the government's own Despite the figures. figures showing that, that it, was, it, it was doubling every few days. They also called in Anders Tegnell, who was Sweden's epidemiologist, who had been responsible for Sweden not locking down, and which had left Sweden with an extraordinarily high death rate and also um, major economic damage. And the only member of SAGE they called into this meeting in, in Downing Street was Professor John Edmonds, who was their chief modeler. He argued strongly that we needed to have a two-week circuit breaker, but the other three argued the opposite. And in the end, Johnson and Sunak decided against it. Unfortunately, what then happened was that exactly what John Edmonds had predicted occurred. The virus continued to escalate. Eventually, you know, all the way through October 2020, the scientists and even Keir Starmer recognised that this was a terrible mistake and he was challenging Rishi Sunak, remember at the dispatch box about it? Yeah. And... Sunak was saying, you know, oh, all you want to do is lock us down and, you know, you're, you're, you're just going to wreck the economy. And Starmer was making the point, well, you know, you're, you're delaying the inevitable. It's like, I mean, the, the analogy that one of the sage scientists used with us was it, it's like seeing your house on fire and just letting it rip through your house and then only acting once it's kind of finished, <laughs> finished burning down your home rather than nipping it in the bud wow. quickly. 
because it means that you know, it causes more damage and costs more at the end to mend. I mean, George, that story alone is remarkable. And this is a government who at the time was telling us, the public, every day that they were following the science. We are being guided by the science. We followed the science throughout this, building on that, that science. We will be relying, as ever, on the science. I mean, all of that will be quite shocking when it's finally gone over in, in the inquiry. I think people will be reminded of that. And there'll be far more detail. You know, you've had little glimpses of Boris Johnson allegedly saying, let the bodies pile high when advisors are urging him to take action. Can the Prime Minister tell the House categorically, yes or no, did he make those remarks or remarks to that effect? Prime Minister. No, Mr Speaker. And I think what I think... Uh, the, the right honourable gentleman is a, is a lawyer, I'm given to understand. I think uh, that if he's going to repeat allegations like that, uh, he should come to this House and substantiate those allegations and say, and say where he heard them and who, who, exactly, who exactly is supposed to have said those. Who exactly is supposed to have said those things, Mr Speaker? You know, I think the detail from inside the room of how that decision was, those decisions were made will be really damaging for the government. And with a lot of these big policies that we've just talked about, so whether it was eat out to help out or, you know, the delay of that autumn lockdown, they were all policies that had Rishi Sunak's signature on them. I mean, literally, the posters for eat out to help out Mm. were all signed by him. Mm. I mean, what do we think will be coming out of Rishi Sunak's WhatsApps? Is, Is that sort of almost a bigger question than Boris Johnson's? Well, when the recent stories about government taking their own inquiry to court to try and avoid having to hand over their full communications and WhatsApps, etc. Obviously, they, you know, ultimately the, the Prime Minister has responsibility for that kind of decision. I was putting my mind back to uh, what Rishi Sunak might be so worried about. And my mind immediately went to eat out to help out and the second wave, his, his failure to act in September. I remember one of the sage scientists actually said to us, that Rishi Sunak was the main person who was responsible for that second wave, that which led to tens of thousands of deaths. So I can understand why he would be concerned about his communications at that time being made public. Particularly if it comes in the run-up to an election. Bluntly, is this you being worried about something embarrassing you? No, not at all. I, 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 as well, am cooperating and providing information to the inquiry. It's actually taking a lot of my own time, and that's right that I do that. But obviously there's a legal proceeding ongoing on one particular thing at the moment, which I can't comment on. But more broadly, the work that the inquiry is doing is important and necessary, and those involved should cooperate in a spirit of candour and transparency. That's what I'm doing, and that's what the government's doing. Could this be the first and last inquiry that will draw so much evidence and information from archives of of WhatsApp messages? Will people move to disappearing messages after this? I think they're probably a fast discovering that function on the the WhatsApp (laughs) app as we speak. And George, you've been speaking to a number of the bereaved families, people who lost loved ones to COVID. And there are a number of groups that are representing them at the moment. I guess they'll be watching the inquiry and working out not only what happened, what went wrong, and how they can explain what happened to their loved ones, but also 
Is there a case for sort of legal action afterwards, depending on what's revealed? Absolutely. So um, they feel that Boris Johnson may have been guilty of the criminal offence of gross negligence manslaughter. They look at that speech he made on the steps of Downing Street after he recovered from the virus in that, in that first wave, where he publicly acknowledged that allowing a second wave would be an economic and human disaster for Britain. Yet, he then allowed that to happen, even though he knew the consequences. And so they've received legal advice that they could potentially take a court action against Boris Johnson on that charge. They didn't want to do that before the inquiry because they wanted to allow all the evidence to emerge, which they could then potentially use in the legal action. So once the inquiry is finished, they will consider their options. But it it is certainly something that the, the legal team are looking at. And I suppose we can assume that Boris Johnson would deny any suggestion that he's guilty of gross negligence. I'm sure, yeah. He would, I'm, that's, 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 that's for sure. But for the families, this inquiry has already been a long time coming. How do they feel about the fact that it'll be taking evidence until 2026? It could be some years yet before they get the answers thereafter. They're massively frustrated. They wanted there to be a quick inquiry in the summer of 2020 after that first wave to make sure the same mistakes were not repeated, which of course did occur. So they're just desperate for answers and many of them feel that their loved ones died, should still be living, should, should be with them. And they want to know who to blame. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Times Social Affairs Editor James Beale and The Sunday Times Deputy Insight Editor George Arbuthnot. You can find all of their reporting on the COVID inquiry at thetimes.co.uk next week. The producers today were James Shield and Max Kendix. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely weekend.